the beauty of those longer races is that you never really actually do know how it's going to change you and what it will be that makes that change. Welcome to the Dark Zone and Adventure Racing Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. In adventure racing lingo, a dark zone is a time when due to darkness or safety, teams are paused on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone. We're glad that you're here. Today's guest is racer Barbara Phipps. A newer racer, Barbara shares with us her dive into adventure racing, how it has helped her to overcome her challenges, and how much she has grown as a person and a teammate during her racing. This is a deeply personal episode of The Dark Zone, and thank you to Barbara for her openness and honesty. Thank you, the listener, for joining The Dark Zone. Today's world doesn't lack for ways to grab your time and attention. We're grateful to have you as a listener. Barbara Phipps of Portland, Oregon, thank you for joining us on The Dark Zone. Um, thank you there, for having me. We, we have a wide variety of, of, of racers and adventure race fans and organizers that pass through The Dark Zone, and they speak with us. And some people come to the dark zone with thousands of hours of racing behind them, hundreds of races all around the world. And they've just, they are just these fonts of experience and knowledge. And then there are those other racers who dive into adventure racing with, with both feet um, and have a great experience <laughs> and can't get any more of it. Um, I hearken back to Wheelo Nader, who was an early guest on the dark zone, who did the adventure yeah. race national championships. It was his first adventure race. Um, I was and, there. I saw him. And he had a delightful <laughs> time. And so, so he did that, Barbara. And so, Barbara, tell our listeners, what is your adventure racing background and experience? Walk us through what you have done so far. Well, um, I my first I consider my first real race to be Expedition Oregon um, of 2021. But I did do like a practice six hour race in Bend um, in March. So technically that was my first race. And ironically, the only course that I've actually completely cleared. <laughs> so kind of funny. I think I'm getting worse, not better. No. <laughs> well, it, it, it's all up and down. So I have no fear, Barbara. You'll be just no, fine. Right. <laughs> and so what makes what makes you an interesting guest for us on the dark zone is there are people that adventure racing speaks to very early on and they really enjoy the experience and they, and they can't seem to get enough of it. And they dive right in with both feet and you would be that kind of a person. Walk Definitely. us through, what was it that adventure racing, the appeal, what it did for you? You have a lot of demanding interest in your life and the other things you have to take care of. Talk about adventure racing and the sport itself. And what was the basic appeal to you as it came across? Well, so I watched the Amazon Prime Eco Challenge in Fiji, and that's the first time I'd ever even heard of this amazing thing called adventure racing. I didn't know it existed until then. Um, and I was watching it with my husband, and there were moments where they would show, especially Sonia Wick and her story that were just like, I don't know, there was this moment that really sticks in my head where she's climbing up a super muddy mountain biking trail. And I don't think she even said anything in that particular scene, and it clicked. I think I could do this, um, which is a crazy thing for me to say since uh, up until that point, the only endurance I had ever done was a half marathon maybe five years ago. Um, and I'd always considered even like the full marathon to be totally crazy. So, um, 
And then my brother called me shortly after I had watched that show. And he's like, hey, you want to do an adventure race with me? And it's funny because I didn't even know that there were shorter adventure races. I thought that adventure racing was a multi-day extravaganza. Yeah, I really did. So um so I said yes, and he said, well, you might want to go watch this show first. And I said, oh, I've seen it. Um, and then, you know, we just started training blindly for something we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And um, I was, yeah, it, it was life-changing, to be honest. So it was a very empowering experience. And, and I'm not sure if I really loved it in the moment in Expedition Oregon. There were some definitely some very I feel sorry for myself hours maybe the last it felt like a lifetime sometimes <laughs> and, and to be clear so Expedition Oregon was was the, the biggest race that you'd ever done and in, oh, prepara- yeah. in, and in preparation for that race was that your very first race or was it was the six-hour race in advance of that the six-hour race was before Expedition Oregon so that I mean I didn't even know what a checkpoint was and It was still kind of hazy. We were going at such a fast pace during the six hour race. I still feel like it may have been one of the harder races I've done. Um, What was the name of it? The sprint races are just so hard. What was the (laughs) name of that race? I'm a very fast person. Um, I think it's, it was a six hour tech race um, by Bend Racing and they did it they put on great, they put on great March, races. So there was no paddle. Yeah, they do a lot of those tech races. So there was no paddle in that one because it was still too cold, I think. Um, so it was mountain biking and um, trekking. And it was really stinking hard. <laughs> who did you, now, who, who did you race with for that one? Was that you? Was that with your brother or was that with someone else? Who were your teammates? Yeah, so for that one, we raced with um, our teammate for Expedition Oregon, um, Jamaica Lambie, who was also a navigator. Uh, he is really incredible, super fast, and was navigating and setting the pace and carrying my pack and throwing food at me. <laughs> so it, it was, I mean, I look back at it now and I'm like, holy moly, how did you do so much in those six hours? I just don't even know. Um, and then my brother. And then my husband, who was also racing with us in Expedition Oregon, stayed home um, to take care of our children. So and this was, and his this was, first race was you, Expedition Oregon. So had you signed up for Expedition Oregon in advance of the March race? Like, was that on the horizon? And the March race was oh, a, was, yeah. a, was a we warm up? We signed up. We were actually uh, not planning on doing the six-hour tech race. J- uh, Jamaica pretty much insisted that we would definitely want to do some kind of race before we went into Expedition Oregon. But before he was on our team, we were really just planning on going into Expedition Oregon. <laughs> so, so for, and for the for context, for the, for the listeners at home, um, Expedition Oregon is a race that's put on by Bend Racing, uh, Jason Magnus mm-hmm. and Chelsea Magnus. It's obviously in Oregon and it makes great use of the, of the beautiful land out West. The, the race on paper was many, was, was it four days or five days on paper? What was the, the length of the race? I think I want to say the cutoff was like 104 hours. So is that five days? I can't even do math right now. We'll, we'll say it's, we'll, we'll say 104 hours. And yeah. it started, it started off think, with it. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think we were racing for 97 hours. So we got there a little bit before the time cut off, but I mean, roughly a hundred hours. Okay so, you, okay. so you raced so, for a hundred hours and which means that you raced for a grand total of 106 hours because your first race was six hours in March Yeah. and you yeah. dove into 
And so it's at this point in the podcast where the listener will most likely stop and stare at their podcast player because here is an incredibly adventurous, courageous guest who woke up one day, had seen Eco Challenge, was filled with what Eco Challenge had to offer. Sonia was an incredible example of, of grit and determination, signed up for Expedition Oregon, which is billed as America's toughest race. It was so, tough. It was tough. So, so walk us <laughs> through your tough. so walk us through your race experience. How did that go for you? Oh man, it was so hard. Um, uh, the first the first leg was a sixty mile paddle, um, and I think to a lot of people that was kind of overwhelming. But for me, I knew with the layout of that race that that would be the highlight of the race for me. Um, because 60 miles on a river is so much easier than 60 mile, miles anywhere else, right? Well, the, the water <laughs> helps. The it pulls you help. downstream. Yeah, no, matter, right? no matter what happens, I mean, you're, you're moving forward, right? Unless, exactly. unless you're moored on some rocks. Worst case scenario, I can just <laughs> float just off float my life jacket. <laughs> der, leader, leader, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we started. Uh, there was a prologue that we skipped. Um, because 60 miles, it's still a significant amount of time to get down a river. So we didn't really want to be on the river too late at night because um, freezing. So we just skipped the prologue. Um, trekking is my slowest section anyway, and I think the prologue was a trekking section. So it just kind of made sense for our team. Um, and it was great. I was on such a high. And, you know, now that I've been adventure racing a little bit longer and talking to a lot of experienced adventure racers, I now know that you'll experience the entire emotional spectrum in every varying level, right? <laughs> so that was, um, and I didn't know that at the time, so I'm riding this uh, whitewater high because I love whitewater rafting. <laughs> And um, we hadn't even trained for the paddle or whitewater rafting. I hadn't been in whitewater for maybe eight years. So I was supposed to be in charge of getting that tandem boat with me and my husband. And I was going to be guiding. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, I've never even officially guided a boat. <laughs> it was fine. It was great. Didn't flip. It was awesome. Had so much fun. So, you know, I'm riding this like super, super built up. Oh, it was great. Got off that river right as sunset. Oh, it was so magical. Just like the timing was perfect and we nailed it kind of thing. And then the 80 mile monster bike came in and broke me multiple times it was so hard i heard that the bicycle the, the that 80 mile bike was described as a bike a, a bicycling leg that had everything except bicycling yeah actually <laughs> for me there, well no that's not very fair there were some sections of flat gravel where we were riding bikes which was so late in the 80 miles that it may as well have been walking their bikes because you're just so exhausted and zonked out. Um, and during the 80 miles, it was it was pretty hot that day. And we were taking, there were two separate routes and a lot of teams took one where um, at the very end, you hit a really steep incline. And then there was another route that I think Bend Racing's team took that was kind of more gradual, but it was still, I mean, it's still 15,000 feet of elevation is 15,000 feet of elevation, no matter how you go about it. Um, so it just felt like we were going uphill forever. And then 
even after forever, we were still going up. <laughs> and um, it was, yeah, it was tough. It was really hot. And I got, I ran out of water and a lot of the creeks on the map that we thought we would cross were actually just dried up. So there was not really a lot of chance to refill on the water. Um, and so I just got super dehydrated and I've heard of athletes, I'm not an athlete, so I should not have really been doing this really huge event, but whatever. At this, at it this was point now, somebody just paused their player and said, you are an athlete, Barbara. You do realize that that someone in, in, in podcast <laughs> land is, is you, you, you finished, you did a 60 mile paddle, right? And, and by the way, yeah. skip the prologue, great move. You got to work right away. 60 mile yeah. paddle. You, you survived that. Right. You, you did a great yeah. job of that. And then you got on this, this massive monster bike. Very often when people graduate to a really, really large race like this, they're bringing a lot of experience from other races where they've learned about their nutrition and their sleep strategy and their gear. Yeah. Because a big part of venture racing is you bring all those different disciplines together into one cohesive group. And even then, with a lot of experience, do do teams still have issues when it comes to getting all of that right. Like when do they sleep? When do they eat? Where do they carry foot care? All of that being that you had done the, the six hour race in March and you were jumping with two feet literally into expedition, Oregon, what were, what was your pre-race strategy to learn those things that you didn't have the experience in to, to at least tell, like, did you have the, did you have the confidence of ignorance where you had no idea what you didn't know and you just barreled forward you said you'd figured out along the way. Did you work with another team? Did you, what did you do to prep yourself for the race before the race actually started? Or did you just go for it? Oh yeah, we just went for it. <laughs> well, thanks um, for coming today, everybody. I think Jamaica had a better idea. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think Jamaica had a much better idea and we did kind of discuss things, but to prepare for a five-day adventure race when you've never even run a marathon I mean, there is no way you can mentally or physically actually prepare yourself for that there's without no doing memory. it. Yeah, there's no muscle memory. Yeah, like, there's nothing right? you could, you no, could do. There's just, yeah. So, I mean, I just was like, well, we'll just deal with whatever happens when it happens out there, right? And um, I was so determined to do that race and to get to that finish line that I really just was like, I don't even care what the obstacle is. I really really want to do this. And I can't even explain why I was so desperate to do an adventure race, but there was something deep in me that was like, I have to do this and I need this for me. Um, and so I just early on in training, it was kind of one of those things where it's just like, I am I am going to do this and I'm going to let myself do this. And up until that point, I'd never really let myself accomplished very much. And I still even will write off finishing Expedition Oregon. Um, and it doesn't really count that I did it. And I, I don't know how to explain it, but it, if I do it, it doesn't count. It's not actually doing it for some reason. Um, and so I will often self-sabotage and let things come in the way. And for Expedition Oregon, it was just this this thing where I was like, I know I can do this and I'm actually going to let myself do this. And all the obstacles that come in the way, I will find a way over them. Um, and most of the obstacles in training for Expedition Oregon felt a lot more mental than physical. Um, because at some point on those races, even the pro teams, everybody's tired and everybody's moving slower than they normally do. And that's just the way it goes. And 
And unless you're running the absolute perfect race, which maybe sometimes they do, there's always going to be problems. There's always going to be gear problems. There's always going to be nutrition problems. There's always going to be someone bonking. Um, and, and while I didn't really know that at the time, um, I, I just was like, I'm just going to go for it. And we will overcome those obstacles because I just needed that that accomplishment i guess <laughs> i mean i think what you're saying is is that that you you had this in your teeth right and you, and you realized it's yes. what you wanted and and your 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 full-throated belief that you were going to make it happen and you wanted to make it happen and you felt you needed to make it happen washed away any of the challenges so you said to yourself right. if, if, if a bicycle breaks we walk Doesn't the bicycle matter. we run out of food yeah well we'll eat each other like whatever whatever it boils down to right <laughs> not literally but yeah. like right. but, the, but the idea and so in one way, that must have been a very empowering feeling for you, knowing that no matter what was going to happen, you were going to finish this race. And as a result of it, you were able to shrug off all of those challenges that more experienced people may have recognized as being challenges because you just didn't know. You knew one thing. You were going to get to the finish line. I was going to get to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I shrugged off all the challenges on that race. <laughs> I was definitely a huge baby during certain moments. But, you know, um, yeah, it was it was so empowering to actually complete that. And even now, just afterwards, nothing seems as overwhelming. Um, and nothing feels quite as out of reach as it used to. Because... Nothing could possibly, I mean, if I could complete something like that, and I don't know what it says about me that I had to complete a five-day adventure race with like 300 something miles for me to feel like I can do anything, but that was basically the end result of that was all of these things that I let stop me from being the things I want to be and reaching those goals that I have kind of slowly started to just break down um, and it started pretty early on in the training process of just a certain mindset and like chipping away at parts of myself that could not stay and complete that race at the same time so what, what were those parts what, what, what in the training in the lead up to the race what did you learn about yourself I'm pretty public about it now, I guess. I don't, it's still kind of hard to say, but um, I've struggled with a pretty serious eating disorder since I can remember. Um, and we're talking like pre-puberty kind of stuff. And I've struggled with suicidal depression since I was around that age as well. Um, and I really did let those stand in my way and doing just about everything. And between those two things, it was like... It's like I couldn't do anything because I would always let one or the other talk me out of achieving very basic things. And the eating disorder and the thought process, I'm, it is so pervasive in the way you live when you have an eating disorder that there is zero thinking that does not involve some kind of skewed thinking based off of that voice inside of your head that's twisting everything to be centered around your disorder. Like my family schedule was centered around it. My how I felt about myself every single day was centered around it. I remember my three, my oldest, when she was three and a half, I had her younger sister was pretty young, close to being a newborn. And I had to go change her diaper. And normally I had the three and a half year old come with me because, you know, she's three and a half and I like to keep an eye on her. 
Um, and she was super excited to go change the baby's diaper, which I thought was really weird because normally she drags her feet because she's playing with something downstairs and doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, and I thought, oh, well, that's cute. So, you know, I'm going upstairs and expecting her to follow behind me and she wasn't there. So whatever, I just changed the diaper and go back downstairs. It's like a two minute job. Right. So um, I go downstairs and there is the three and a half year old who had pulled the freezer open and had eaten like a little tiny um like a little tiny ice cream cone kind of thing uh and she was she'd so cute she'd pulled a chair like to hide under in front of the freezer <laughs> because you're not gonna see Makes that sense. exactly oh yeah it was super cute but in that moment instead of being a mom where you see this three and a half year old who had been like yeah mommy go upstairs change the diapers super excited right and you could tell she had pre-planned that this this was my chance you know and instead of being able to see that amusing moment as just a three and a half year old seeing an opportunity to eat something yummy that she knew i'd say no to and turning it into this moment of panic i initially saw it and instantly just was like <gasps> She's secretive eating and, and it's starting now and she's only three and a half years old. And how could I possibly have given my three and a half year old daughter an eating disorder? And it's totally my fault. And right, like it just and something so basic like that, it just it it taints everything. Um, and so training for such a big race, I couldn't let it control me anymore. There were things where like you probably shouldn't go for this run because you're too fat or you can't run a 12 minute mile because you're too fat. And maybe you should like starve yourself and lose 10 pounds before you can go and do this race, right? Or just even basic running, you know, you can't do that yet. You need to lose weight first. And, and the methods to losing that weight is so ridiculously dysfunctional and counterproductive. <laughs> But right. And it just constantly is going in the cycle where you can't do that. You're too fat. Those people don't like you because you're too fat. Right. Like it just literally everything, every moment of my life just felt like you can't do that. You're too fat or you can't do that. You're suicidal and depressed and depressed. People don't go off and have fun activities and they don't do fun things. They hide in their house because they're depressed. Nobody wants to be around the party pooper. Um, and so, and so for what you're saying, and thank you, by the way, for, for being open and honest about your own challenges, because I find very often that people, you know, the universe speaks to us in various ways. And hopefully there's someone listening to this podcast who's going to hear your story and they're going to identify and it's going to put them on their own journey. That is so literally the only reason why I can build up the courage to say it is because I know that listening to Sonia on that show was so powerful and moving for me. It changed the way I think I've never I really did I accepted that I was going to have an eating disorder the rest of my life and I was doing all the things that you're supposed to do I was going to therapy and I was meditating and I really just was throwing everything I could think of to get this out of my life and I couldn't I couldn't figure it out and I would talk to people or I'd read stuff and it was just like how do I get to that point where I'm willing to accept that maybe that isn't the only thing that mattered? Um, 
And I don't know why, because I'm just watching Sonia and her being so open about her depression and um, overcoming it just really made me feel like, you know what, this doesn't have to be your story. You can change your story. You just have to go and change your story, which I don't, I can't even explain to you why, because it sounds so simple. But maybe after hearing it all those years from all these different women, it finally clicked. And I'm maybe on a slow learner where I had to hear it a thousand times. And so that's why I actually do come out and start talking about it is because maybe I'm only the 150th convincing story that someone's heard about these things. And they still have six or seven hundred times to hear that story. But I will have contributed just a little bit to getting that person to where they need to be, to where they can actually change their story. You know, everything we see is a reflection upon ourselves. And I I could identify with your conversation about how every single choice, behavior, event moment in your life is done in the shadow of your of your perceived failings. Right. I am I am this thing. And because I'm this thing, I can never be that thing. Or because I'm this thing, I won't have all of that. And it's it's not an uncommon experience. And I had the same thing back in 2005 when over Thanksgiving weekend, I watched the NBC broadcast of the Ironman. They are mineral championships mm-hmm. and it was a heavily produced, you know, Al Michaels, you know, Al Tratwig, I'm sorry, Al Tratwig doing his voiceover and I'm an Iron Man and showing those stories. And I'm like, thought to myself, I'm going to do this eventually. And that set me on the path where eventually that was actually 2004, 2006, because back in the day, you had to sign up a year in advance. I completed the Iron Man Lake Placid in 2006. I lost like 75 pounds along the way and I've not been the same ever since. Right. And so wow. I could really identify with. Yeah. The, the, the world showing you something, an ideal, and then accomplishing it. And, and I, mm-hmm. I, heard, I listened to a podcast not too long ago and it was somebody and I, I it was, um, it was one of the rich roll podcasts. It was Mike Posner and Mike Posner is this um, songwriter and he climbed Everest. And he did all this. He walked across the country and he talks about when he, when he finished climbing Everest and it may not have been Everest. It may have been, uh, it was a big thing that he did. When he finished that big thing, he didn't necessarily have a sense of accomplishment. He had a sense of potential. Yeah, that yeah I, as exactly. Result, as, because I can do this now because I've done this thing. And while the mm-hmm. box is checked for the world, this is actually the starting point to what I can now do going forward. And there's and there's more potential out there. And I can relate to that because when I, you know, when I when I did the Ironman for the first time and I came in, I thought I was going to go the full 17 hours. I went like 1257. I went um, under 13 hours. And this is after being on the couch for a good part of my life and always fighting with my weight and always fighting with food and all of those issues and being the fat kid and having all those challenges in my life. And, you know, last pick for gym class, yeah. right? Like, like just get online, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. And, the, <laughs> and, and being that person, when I, when I turned down the finishing shoot, I, I, I remember the thought was in my head was, was, well, that wasn't so hard. And that's not that I was any sort of amazing athlete by any times and, and nor would I've called myself an athlete at the time, much like you did before. Yeah. But rather I saw the fact that now that I can do this, I can go do that. And there were other that's exactly. that I wanted to go do. And it sounds yeah. like that was your experience and that your something, really was. Was, something, something was, was triggered inside of you that said, mm-hmm. okay, I've now seen this thing. And so you, and so you saw Rico challenge. And you and that and you saw Sonia and that sort of that sort of checked a big box for you inside. And then you mm-hmm. decided that it was now time that you, you made a decision to start your journey. And your journey really was about Expedition Oregon. I'm assuming you yeah. chose Expedition Oregon because of proximity to you, like the fact that it wasn't like half a world away. 
I just didn't even know there were other. Yeah, right. Like I, I wasn't the one to sign up. My brother was um, the one to do all of that kind of stuff, and I just followed along, went did, on for the did ride. Did he sign right? up with you? As a, did he sign up with you as his partner? Did he know you? Did he say, "Let's do this together"? Or did you come I out after he signed up? He actually signed up on his own without a team and was like, oh, I'm going to get a team, right? Like, so he's got his whole other story going on as well, right? Where what kind of person is like, oh, I know, I'll just do an expedition organ, but my brother will. You know, he's always the one that um, that I always like to tell people that I do the dumbest, coolest stuff with him. Um, and that would be a perfect example, Expedition Oregon, where you're like, yeah, let's go do this. Let's go whitewater rafting in the middle of the night, uh, <laughs> which is something we have done. And we didn't even look at like the dam release times or anything like that. We're rafting this river and it's not the river we normally raft out, right? Like these are just the things that you do with my brother. There's no thinking involved. There's just, let's go do it. I want to do this. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> So that was, um, I didn't even really think twice of it. I was really grateful that it was in Oregon. Um, it definitely makes my life a little bit easier since it's only about a four hour drive from where I am. So um, it's kind of nice, especially on the West Coast where there's really not a lot of adventure racing going on. So band racing puts on really good races all the time. So you had your prologue you didn't do, you did the 60 mile paddle, you went on the 88 mile bike. So uh-huh. let's break the race down into sections. As you right. went through the biking section, it was a, there's a pleasurable gravel to pedal on near the end. Walk us through your team's journey. How, how did the team hold together during the first third of the race? Did your nutrition bear out? Did your feet fall apart? Did, what did you do well? When you reflect upon your experience, what you learned, because you got a crash course in adventure racing, literally, <laughs> like, like welcome, welcome to the big stage. What, yeah. Looking back now and processing out and talking about it, what did you learn inside that experience that you, it was different than what you expected when the race started? You had preconceived notions and then yeah. you had the actual event. What's the gap in between? What was the, what was the Delta as they say, what did you learn? I think the biggest thing that I learned through that, especially the 80 mile bike ride was that that wall that people talk about where you hit a wall and you can't keep going it does not exist. It's not there. It's in your head. Um, and I remember at some point just being like, I can't go on any further. And then you just keep going. And then I can't go on any further. And then you throw up and you keep going. And, right? Like, <laughs> um, and so I think for me, that was the most amazing thing that I was not expecting. I thought that there would be a point where you really would have to stop. There's just no going forward. And um, obviously the hydration was a huge issue, um, but I, I don't even know if there was anything we really could have done about that other than carry a lot more water at some point. Yeah, I don't even know. Cause we refilled all our water at um, the little John Day tent, I think. There's like a little, I don't know. That was a big, but, big, um, big navigation lesson you learned early on is don't trust the blue lines on the maps. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. Basically, don't trust anything on the maps except maybe the topo lines and the big landmarks around you that are not man-made. <laughs> Just not, everything else, else is, is up for grabs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's true. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I was in such 
it was like, you know, I was on that big high from the paddle and then I just tanked at some point in the day on that second day during the, the mountain biking. And so I don't even know what all the other teammates were going through other than let's just keep going and dragging me around. Um, and then eventually we did stop at night when the sun was starting to go down. And was that the, my was that the husband second says, day? Was that the end of the first day or the end of the second day? It was the end of the second day. So, and so you, so you raced husband, through the night the first night. You raced all the way through the night. Yeah. And you raced into yeah. the day. So you were roughly 35, 36 hours into the race. Yeah. We did stop to sleep for like, I think they stopped and slept for an hour as the sun rose the second day. It's all just one big, long blur. Well, that's what happens. One everything... big, long day, and the sun goes up yeah. and it goes down a couple of times in that one day. <laughs> well, you, you ought to talk to people who did Expedition Alaska because that was done in the summer. And there was oh, no, no darkness. I, think, I thought about that. Yeah, right. And I was and, like, oh, I wonder if that's the way to go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one person who did the race once told me that that she thought it was the night of day one. It was the morning of day three. Yeah. How could you tell? She, there was no there was no. Was, yeah. Yeah. You just didn't know. You just kept going until you couldn't go anymore. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like and I, I expect that with a race like that, especially over time, it would become even more of a blur where I don't know what's that the first day. I don't even know. Right. Because, I mean, it hasn't even been a year and Expedition Oregon, there are moments that I can remember very vividly. And then a lot of it's just a big, long blur, <laughs> you know. Um, but we did stop the second night as well. My husband says that I couldn't I, I couldn't keep going. He said I kept falling. As I was pushing my bike up the trail, I don't remember that. I feel like I was going. <laughs> so, because um, I had been telling myself for hours at that point, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. That's all you're doing right now is just one foot in front of the other for so many hours that when they finally told me stop, I was like, no, let's not stop. Let's keep going. It's a good thing we stopped because I really did. We stopped, we refilled water, we found a creek and, um, yeah, we refilled water, got hydrated, and the difference that makes, fed. right? A little, little bit of food, a little bit of water, a little caffeine, a little sugar. What a difference how you just yeah. reinvent yourself. Yeah, right. Like, and I, he changed me. I wasn't because the sun had gone down and it was getting cold, and I was in wet, sweaty clothes. I wasn't coordinated enough to actually even change myself, which is, I don't know, very humbling to have that intimate moment with your spouse where, I mean, I've had three kids with him and it still was very changing in our relationship to just be able to trust someone to the point where he's dressing you like a little baby. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he made sure that I was fed and all the other teammates were doing other things and they just put me in a bivy bag and I slept, I think my husband piled pine needles on me at some point while they were dealing with stuff. And then they moved us a little further away from the trail. I miss the pine needles. They were so warm and comfy. <laughs> it's funny what you think of as comfortable sleeping after Expedition Oregon. Even last night, I think my husband and I were talking. I was just like, yeah, how tired are you really? Because after that experience, you're never it, really it, well, super it tired. Every, it changes every, yeah, every it perspective. Like like nothing yeah. is truly ever as different or as hard after coming through an experience like that. And wrapping in a bivy bag by the side of a trail, 36 hours into a 104 hour race, yeah. being pretty strung out is, is quite the experience. You know, it was and I've, comfy, I, man. Yeah, and I've been in races <laughs> in which I've seen teammates basically say to teammates, like, you sit down here 
catch your breath. I'm going to make you some yep. food. Here's something hot to drink. You take care, get out of that wet, get out of those wet clothes, put some dry socks mm-hmm. on. Like, there's a point in which we really put the adventure in adventure where you have to, there's a, there's yeah. a bit of a, there's a bit of a, a survival base. And I don't want to be dramatic, but there's definitely wet clothes, yeah. hungry, wet clothes late at night in the mountains could spell a lot of trouble. Yeah. I didn't even consider it. <laughs> I never actually even felt like I was really in that much danger. I don't know. I was just surrounded by three very competent humans and, yeah, maybe I was just too far gone to realize. But um, yeah, bag, it is, pine it's, needles. How long did you sleep for? Uh, we were there way too long. That was not my decision. It was freezing at night. And I just never stop at the coldest point in the night. That's not the time to be sleeping. It was freezing. Um, I don't I don't know. It was pretty close to sunrise, I think. So we were we were down for a while. Um way too long. And I think at that point, I'd kind of just accepted that the race was over and that we were no longer going to be racing. So um, when we did eventually make it TA2 and they were like, yeah, you can keep racing. It was just mind blowing. I was just... You happy were you sad? <laughs> oh, I was thrilled. I was so happy. You were, <laughs> Which I know you were like, oh. Crazy. <laughs> I know, I know. I was really, like, oh, I, I have was to really stop. I don't have to sleep in the pine needles again. Oh, darn. I yeah. guess I got to stop. No, I was genuinely relieved. And, you know, they do say that every TA breathes new life mm-hmm. into your race. And that really is so true. It really does. And, so we just started on the trek and that was just one night of walking and walking and walking. And then one day of walking and walking and walking. <laughs> so how hard, how hard did your team find the navigation? Um, I think there were some moments that were, were a bit of a struggle, uh, especially when Jamaica was tired. Um, I, maybe I was too ignorant at the time to recognize when things were hard. We did get lost a couple times, but it's not that big a deal, right? Um, it wasn't, I never felt like we never knew where we were. It was just a decision of where we, how are we going to get to where we want to go kind of thing. Because there were definitely lots of different options and yeah. there would be a trail that you thought was there and then it eventually peters out and you can't find it anymore, especially at night. It's really difficult to find it, if it's a really hazy trail or an old one, it can be really hard to to keep track of where it is. And eventually you're off the trail and you don't even know where the trail disappeared. <laughs> did, you, did you realize going into the race that that short coursing was, was going to be an option for you? Because you thought the race was over. Right? So, you, no. so you, oh, so you did realize. So, so for those listening Mm-mm, at home, I didn't know. adventure racing. So, so there's a, so when a, a big adventure race takes place, um, or any adventure race takes place, the, the race organizer will will put the entire course out there. And the course might be a series of stages and maps and different transition areas. If teams are slower on the course, the race director doesn't pull them off the course unless they're, they're so far behind they can't be helped. They get short-coursed, which means that they get an alternate route to another part of the, of the course. So, Barbara, coming back to, to your experience, was when you got to that TA2 after your paddle and after that massive bike and the pine needles and the hydration and all of that and the and the the cold did you think that they were going to say to you it's been great you're off the course oh yeah i mean it was so weird when we got in there and and you know the volunteers are clapping and cheering you on and there was a team there 
at the transition, like transitioning, my brain exploded. I was like, how could we possibly have not been by like 12 hours the last, I mean, it just, I couldn't even fathom how anyone could possibly have been as slow as us. Um, and there was actually even a team behind us, nowhere in sight, uh, when we got to TA2. So, yeah, Jason, I think he told us to just go um, go do the trek. <laughs> uh, we did get short-coursed um, after the trek. We were really slow on that one as well. Uh, trekking's my slow suit. <laughs> I'm working on it. But um, after that, once we got to the that TA or the checkpoint, yeah, it was checkpoint 17, I think. It wasn't technically a transition, but it might as well have been a TA. Um, and at that point, they said, here are your bikes, get to TA6, I think. Um, and that's where I think was Jamaica's biggest hurdle, right? Because that covered pages and pages of map. Huge, and huge it distance, wasn't, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he had it all spread out. Um, I think at one point there must have, I'm trying to block all the pieces, nine blocks of maps, maybe even more kind of spread out, trying to figure out how do we do that, right? Because it, you never really plan on going from checkpoint 17 all the way to near the end of the race. Um, expected to go one that was like four or five maps ahead. So all of a sudden he had to piece together that route. Oh, which was it was super more than long. four or five. It was colossal. Okay. It was okay. huge. I just, yeah, he was definitely stressed in those moments. And I wish I could have helped, but I didn't really know a lot of, about navigation at that point. And so there wasn't a lot any of us really could do other than transition and get some food and get bikes ready right that was that, like at that point you give the navigator a, a hot cup of coffee in space and let, and let yeah. him or her figure it out <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah. yeah um so we that was oddly enough that section of the race was the the like the best memories of it why? And then I hold it dear because it was so unique to our team and nobody else really had quite the same experience because we were off on our own adventure well beyond anything that anyone who designed that course could have thought of. So um, I think that's why I like it so much is that it was just so unique to us. And there were definitely some moments where that was also really hard. It was hot again, man, the heat, it just kills me. Um, <laughs> but there were, it, that, that bike ride was pretty tough as well. Um, and at the end of it, in the night, I'd finally gotten hydrated enough that, oh, during the day, I'd started passing out from, I think it was heat exhaustion. I thought it was fatigue. But when I got back, I was actually talking to uh, Stephanie Ross about my experience. And she's like, yeah, that sounds like heat exhaustion. <laughs> and I was like, huh. And thinking about it and like later on going and being like, what are the symptoms of heat exhaustion? Oh, yeah, that would be me. And I would like pedal for five minutes and pass out and pedal for five minutes and pass out. Um, so eventually my team was like, we have got to find our way off this butte. Um, and we ended up going on some private property onto this big, gorgeous ranch. 
and it was all downhill and it was on the backside of the butte. So the sun was, um, it was all shaded. And so it was like two miles of downhill shaded cooling. And it was so funny because I got to the very end and I was like, guys, I think that caffeine pill kicked in. <laughs> and it was really just that my body had had time to cool off enough that I felt okay again, which is kind of funny. But um, we, we cycled, we pushed really hard through the night to get through. And um, I'd gotten wet in the night and we stopped again at the coldest point of the night because my brother was not able to stay awake literally anymore. He almost crashed his bike. And I, I'm sure that's a really common thing for multi-day racers and um, especially on the bike, it was a little too scary. So we'd stopped and ironically, we were only about a mile and a half away from TA6. We just didn't really realize it at the time. Um, and then we saw a team pass by us where we'd pulled off to kind of sleep in our bivy bags. And uh, that's when Jamaica was like, wait a second. And so he started looking more closely. And I think he realized, oh my goodness, we're right there. So, um, but I think we'd stopped for maybe about an hour and a half by that point. And I had never gotten out of my cold clothes. I I think I was too tired and I didn't think it would be that big a deal. Um, it was a big deal. <laughs> I, it was, it was so, I was shaking so much that it was a real struggle to get back on my bike. I have literally never felt that kind of cold before where I think Jamaica even had said, just keep going, you'll warm up. And I knew that I, I, that made sense, right? Like, of course, when you go for a cold ride, initially you're cold and then you warm up and it's fine. That was not, I couldn't even, I was so cold and my muscles were so frozen that I just couldn't even go. It was so difficult to go at like a walking pace on my bike. Um, I've never been cold since. Yeah, I mean, that meter's been changed. Yeah, oh, definitely. Oh, it really is. Yeah. Um, so we got to the TA and, you know, they did all the pump her full of hot coffee and saved me again. And how many times can this chick bonk on this stupid race? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's kind of funny. We were on a really cold bike ride on a training with um, four fragile flowers for our expedition Oregon race this upcoming year. And we were up in Mount Hood just a few weeks ago during around Thanksgiving. So it's pretty cold up on that mountain. It has uh, snow up there usually around. So it was cold. Um, and we're, we're biking down. We went downhill for maybe, I want to say 35 kilometers of straight downhill in the rain. Cold. Yeah, like, cold quickly. Yeah. Portland drenching rain. Yeah. Right. And so cold and just soaked all yeah, the way through. Heat. Yeah, there's no heat to generate. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, go. I was riding my brakes. I needed a new brake pad anyway. And so I pulled my mm -hmm. um, back brake pads and I started pedaling just to keep my muscles moving because right. I was so cold. But even then, in the, you know, in an hour of going downhill like that and that it's cold, it was never impossibly cold because I would just focus on just find your heat, you know, and so you're just going downhill and you just focus on finding where the warmth is, because if you focus on everything that's cold, you're going to feel so cold. If you can find the warmth inside of you, 
you're not going to be cold anymore. And so that's kind of what I was doing. I was just like, because your organs are still warm, right? There's still warmth in you. But um, that day on Expedition Oregon, there was there was no warmth. There was nothing left in me. I was just, it took a long time for me to get warmed up again. Um and then we went on our merry way to the finish line. <laughs> and then, poof, and then, you're, and then it's over. And then yeah, it's, that right? is, that is a finishing line. There was a moment. I may have yelled at Jamaica at some point about Swedish fish. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, right. Like, but that, that, that whole leg of the race from being up on the butte and passing out from heat exhaustion to within 12 hours being so frozen, there was no warmth left inside of me. Um, it, I, it, it was oddly empowering. I know that sounds so wild, but I think over the, the course of this last year, I really just learned that you're never really truly going to grow without adversity and overcoming those those struggles. And those two things really did change my perspective on what's hard, what I can and can't do, which is basically nothing now. Um. <laughs> and, and you follow this beautiful drama, if you will, of the fact that you, you saw something that spoke to you. You jumped through and do it with both feet. You went through the entire experience. And on the other side, you're a different person. And one of the, one of the challenges, and it's nice that you did it with your with your with your brother. It's nice you did it with your 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 loved ones and your family, because it's very very hard when you return from an adventure. The people who didn't go on the adventure don't quite understand the adventure, and yeah. explaining it to them is kind of hard. And when you're at a cocktail party and you're at a social function and you're you're trying to explain <laughs> what it was, and you and you verbalize the event, people kind of look right through you. And it's not yeah. their fault. They just don't have that experience. Like if, if you try to explain neurosurgery to me, I'm like a dog looking at the radio. Like I've never been there. Yeah, you so can't I don't even get fathom it. it. Yeah. There's no part that you can actually picture in your mind. Although, I mean, honestly, these days when I come across people and I'm trying to explain it to them, I just say, you know what? You should just go. If any of this sounds interesting to you, just go watch the show. Because while there are definitely some serious gaps in what adventure racing is there, like, I don't think they show a single checkpoint on that entire thing. <laughs> they maybe show one in a waterfall. <laughs> I don't know. But right, like. Uh, and TAs are are not very realistic filling in there, but you can kind of get an image in your head, at least of what maybe adventure racing looks like. It certainly looks and feels different than that, but at least you can start to kind of visualize what that journey is. So from, a, from a non barber specific experience, but more general, larger for people, what do you think adventure racing speaks to says to the person who likes the racing what why do you think people return to the racing again and again i think it's a desire to grow and as i was saying without adversity you're never really going to if you don't step out of that comfort zone and challenge yourself and find find what what's inside of you what makes you you you're not really going to grow if you if you live the same nine to five life and you do the same routine repetitively for the years and years right there's very little opportunity for you to face true struggles that will help you become a stronger individual and i th i think that's probably one of the real reasons why so many people go i mean yes it's it is fun the shorter ones are certainly a lot more i'd say fun than life-changing uh, 
not that they don't have their place. <laughs> that is the best part to me of the expedition races. And I've done Expedition Oregon and raced for 97 hours. I've done Nationals, which was a 30-hour race, and we raced for most of that time. I've done an eight-hour beginner race in Buffetti, and I've done a couple of six-hour races at Bend Racing now. And I think over time, I'm just starting to realize that expedition races are are the ones that will really change you. Um, I think I, I I talked about deconstruction um, on on um, Instagram and Facebook at one point after my last race because it, it's in my head before that point I'd started thinking of expedition races as like Marie Kondoing your soul where like it all you just dump it all out you know you your gear and everything that makes you you <laughs> right yeah you're dumping that all out and it's all on the trail all the pieces that make you you and then you have to decide what's worth carrying on from this moment forward and what really just needs to stay behind and you can just leave that there um and and i think that's the beauty of expedition racing it's it's hard but it's hard in the modern world we live in now to find opportunities where you have to you are literally forced into reevaluating everything that makes you you um I've never done two expedition races, so I don't know what this next one will be like. I It still feels almost like a big blank of, I know I'm going to be doing that emotional ups and downs. I can kind of have an idea, but I think the beauty of those longer races is that you never really actually do know how it's going to change you and what it will be that makes that change. You, you did the the first race with, with the first expedition race with people who you know very well and who know mm -hmm. you and who your husband helping to helping to change your clothes. You're, you know, mm -hmm. clearly now you're going into your next expedition, Oregon with people you necessarily, you don't know as well. You may have trained with them. Now, who is your team going into the next ex expedition, Oregon? Who are you racing with? So it's um, Team Fragile Flowers. It's an all-female team, which I'm really excited about because that's a little bit more unique in the adventure racing world, unfortunately. But don't worry, we'll get to that. And that's a, and, and and to your to your point, the fact that it's an all-female team, what's been what's been nice to see, especially through the Women in, in AR initiative and the Buff Betty series and all the work that's being yeah. done. What we're seeing is an incredible larger, larger numbers of of all female and female dominant teams coming into the into the sport. Yeah. Um, a big shout out goes to the our fellow podcast, Burf Barf. They talk a lot about that. They do an excellent job. I love Burf Barf. Yeah, Burf Barf <laughs> is, is, is a fantastic podcast and they do a great job talking yeah. about that and, and representation of the sport is important. So it's good Definitely. that the fragile flowers are going there. So it's an all female team going into Exodus in Oregon. And who are your teammates? Right. So Olga Huber is the creator of Fragile Flowers, and she will be our navigator, our main navigator. And then we have Sherry Hines, um, who is a very experienced racer. I almost feel intimidated with these women that I'm racing with. And then you meet them and you're like, you're a human. <laughs> and that's how it always feels with adventure racing. I can't meet Jason Magnus. And then you meet him and oh, yeah, you're human. I can't meet Chelsea. Oh, wait, no, she's still a human. It's kind of funny. But so we've got Olga and Sherry and then um, my sister, Sarah. Um, I kind of drag her into it. 
<laughs> you, you are keeping but, a family connection there. You're keeping someone who you know intimately there. Yeah. So it started out with me and my sister planning on doing the race and just kind of finding out teammates as we went along. And I knew that through Women of AR, the Facebook group that I would eventually find suitable people for us to race with. Um, and I think it was Bill Donahue who uh, told Olga I was looking for a teammate. And she decided that her first expedition race should be with people who don't know what they're doing. No? <laughs> but um, no, and Sherry's great. She's got such an endless amount of knowledge on all the things, gear and nutrition, you know. So it feels a lot safer in some ways to be going with these women just because um, they have so much experience and I have a little bit more experience. My sister's never, she did Buff Betty with me in the fall. Um, and that was, I think that's the only race she's done so far. And then we did some training in November and we were going uphill for so long, like four or five hours, something like that. And she goes, is it always uphill? And I just laughed because it just made me think of the mountain biking and expedition Oregon. It was like, yeah, <laughs> that's how adventure racing goes. It's uphill both ways, sometimes in the snow. <laughs> in the rain and in the um, heat and in the mud and yeah, in the dry and the in the things. dust. Yeah, it was just funny because she's like, is it always going to go uphill? Yeah, it always will. Just plan on it always being uphill and then you'll never be disappointed when you're always going uphill. This well, is I what play. I planned on. <laughs> I've, I've, had to, I've, I've raced expedition level races with, with Shari and Shari's a good friend, full disclosure for yeah. the listeners out there. And Shari is, is a fantastic racer and she's a good person and you can have a fantastic time with her. So I, I'm, I'm jealous oh, that yeah. you're getting to do an, an expedition because she's strong and she's fun to race with. Olga too, I know I know not as well as I know Shari, but I, I've seen Olga in action. And I think you have a great experience. I think it'll be interesting for you. And I look forward to the, the next time we yeah. have a conversation after that experience, how you your mindset and your change going into racing with two people who bring a larger skill set, who are wonderful people, but you're going to have to wrap your head around the idea that these are your new teammates and how teachable are you? What can you teach them? What strength can you bring? Things like that, because you don't want to just be yeah. a passenger, right? You don't want to be dragged along for four hours. That's kind of how I felt last time. Yeah. Um, it, and that's something that my sister and I are kind of struggling with because we're not, I mean, Olga is, an ultra trail runner and mm -hmm. she's run national champions and these she's a jet like a legitimate athlete she's really incredible i mean after training with her my mind is blown with how fast she can go without even breathing heavy oh yeah she's she's fierce <laughs> mm -hmm. um and then you've got my sister and i who are just beginning and um i just have to keep reminding myself that racing with two incredible athletes. Um, I mean, we can kind of raft. It's been a while, but I'm confident I can get through decent white water without, you know, hopefully tipping the boat too many times. You never know. One bad angle and it's over, right? But um, I mean, that's kind of what my sister and I are bringing to the table. And we just know that as we're doing this training, the trekking and the mountain biking, we're just like, well, we better really nail it on the white water um, because that's kind of what we feel we can contribute to the team. Um, but also, I do think that there is an element of safety in racing with beginner racers because it, it, it lowers the expectations down to I'm just going to test out the expedition race, right? Olga has done plenty of endurance races. I think 
the longest race she's done is 36 hours. So, I mean, she's right on the cusp of doing those expedition races to begin with. And this just kind of gives her the opportunity with zero pressure to test it out and see how she, how you do, right? So that she can go on with her other regular fragile flower racers and, and maybe have a more competitive experience. But this time around, it's definitely just giving her a chance to race with people where the expectation is we get to the finish line and we do the best we can and she will learn along the way, right? So, I mean, that is maybe the only pro other than I can whitewater raft. Please race with me, Olga. <laughs> I think experience too has been, I've, I've had the opportunity to be the, the least skilled proficient racer on, on a team with more skilled people. And the game plan, the, the, the playbook says this, is that when you're that person, do as much as you can to help with the logistics and making certain the gear is sorted, you're ready to go, be a hand yep. that like, like let the navigator navigate. But when you get to a TA, spend some time making sure your team is sorted. Like identify your skill set where you where it exists going into it and then pound yeah. away that skill set during the race as much as you can. And and recognize the fact that there's going to be situations during the race in which you're not going to have a skill set for what lay what what is lying in front of you. Right. And and I'll tell you that right. for the most part. I think that the 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 technical skill involved in the cycling and the rafting and in the, in the in the paddling and in the trekking, that very often the gap the gap among all your skill sets probably not as far apart as you think it's going to be. It's it's the value that you could bring to the team and recognize that there are times where you're just going to be following along. Um, and I think that's a really and I, I'm I look forward to hearing about your experience and I can tell you going into it that I I I, I don't. Uh, I was going to use the word vouch. That's not the right word to use. I, I would be honored to race with Olga or Shari. They're, they oh, are definitely. very, very strong racers and they're, and they're very good. And I think you're going to have a great experience with them. And if you yeah. think the learning curve on your first race with Steve, oh, I know. the learning curve on this one is going to be, <laughs> is going to be through the charts. Um, oh, and absolutely. It, it, yeah. And, and Shari loves her snacks. So, so be prepared. You're going to eat your way across Oregon because she's a very, very oh, good, good purveyor of food. Um, oh, I'm excited for that. I'm excited. Yeah. Go, you know, when you when you have a chance to kind of finish a big event, finish a huge life thing, whatever it may be, there's always the idea of the post-race blues. You return to your, your yeah. day-to-day life, right? And you're back to being there. What was your strategy, especially in light that you shared your mental health challenges, you shared the ups and downs of your experience? What did you do or what did you wish you had done to guard against the post-race blues when you returned home and it wasn't about maps and races and teammates anymore. It was just about the day-to-day living you have to go through. Oh, man, I was so exhausted that first week. There was nothing but exhaustion. No. <laughs> um, I don't really remember too much of the post-race blues. I felt like after the race, I just wanted more. You know, I'd gotten this taste of this experience, and it was so empowering Um, I instantly started, I I should have done this before racing, (laughs) digging into the adventure racing community and world before you go on the expedition race. But, you know, to all those out there thinking about adventure racing, maybe do that first. Um, But right after the race, I kind of just, I started binge listening to every podcast I could. I started, um, and through that, I had found out about Women of AR, and then I started talking to Stephanie Ross, and it just kind of went from there. So I don't really know if I experienced a lot of post-race blues just because I was so excited that I'd found this new thing. When I initially planned on doing Expedition Oregon, I thought it was the experience of a lifetime, and that after that, 
we would go on with our regular lives. But after finishing Expedition Oregon, it was so changing and meaningful to me that I didn't even consider that I wasn't going to carry on doing some form of racing. There was a definite moment where I went to go look and see where the nearest expedition race would be and realizing this is how ignorant I was. That was the only one in the United States. And I was just like, wait, what? I didn't even realize what a big deal doing a World Series adventure race was until after I'd already done it. You thought about, um, so, about coming out in June for and for Rootstock Racing Generals Mountains? Because there, there are... Oh, I want to so bad. I just can't. My husband um, has definitely already said, but can you take like a real break after Expedition Oregon this time? Because um, it's just been, I think at every... Almost every weekend now I have some sort of training or I've got, you know, orienteering because I'm learning how to navigate now. And there's there's just always something or there's like some kind of small race that I'm doing. So as much as I want to do Endless Mountains, and I think I'd committed to Expedition Oregon before they even announced that they were doing that race. And I was just like, oh, so because I have some other teammates from Nationals, I think, that are doing that one. and. I think the, the real value is Endless Mountains it. brings. So, so we're where we are in New Jersey is we're like five and a half hours, four or five hours from Endless Mountains. And oh, really? The the thing about Endless Mountains is, from a big picture perspective, which we're really talking a lot about here, usually to do a race of that caliber, you know, a a, a major ARWS race. It's a demonstration race, but still ARWS right. branded race. Yeah. You would need a passport and a plane ticket. Now, yeah. admittedly, you would need the plane ticket coming out west. But for those of us on the East Coast, we have to fly to the Ecuadors and the Scotlands and the, you know, and the, yeah. and the, and the um, name the country. You know, we have to fly to those countries. So for us, it has incredible appeal because it's literally right in our backyard and it's right off the East Coast. And yeah. so I, I, I hear what you're saying about the family commitments. Those are always challenging. But I also would put a huge plug in for that. And for some reason, it's also the beginning of summer vacation. So your kids won't miss you that much. They'll be in camp and they'll be fine. So, you know, tell them. Adventure tell, tell racing them that uncle. is my mom vacation. So right. <laughs> <laughs> we can never have too many mom vacation in a year, right? No. right. <laughs> I know. Um, it's definitely, I mean, I think that was the biggest moment for me in experiencing post-race blues, honestly, was just realizing there that was it all year. I have to wait an entire year before I can do another race. And for me, Bend Racing's Expedition Oregon is your endless mountains, right? right. It is not that far. Right. I can like pack my stuff in a car and go. Right. I don't even need a big car, you know, because it's just right there. So, um, yeah, I'm excited that they're doing more. And even the one in Canada, I'm like, oh, there's one in Canada now, yeah. right? So it is very exciting to think that you have a chance to do a little bit more of these expedition races here in the United States, because as I said before, they are life-changing. I, I always stay away from the, this, the, the fallacy of the golden age, because the, the joke is, is that the, the golden age of any organization was five minutes before you arrived. And so people tend to fall into that trap. Um, and so, so I stay away from the idea of, of talking about golden, golden ages and all that. But I will say that when you look at adventure racing in the United States and it's in Normandy, the fact that we have now have Bend Racing, Rootstock Racing, Expedition Canada, they have their, their race series. The fact that there are races all up and down the East Coast, there's races all over the country. Mm -hmm. Nationals, 
you know, are, are kind of in your backyard. I know it's not. Oh, it's, yeah, but it's, I do. It's a, I haven't told my husband that yeah. I'm planning on doing that one, but it's in September, so it doesn't yeah, count. Exactly. September, it's ages <laughs> away. And he'll listen to the podcast. He'll find out then. So that the best way to tell him is have to just listen to the podcast. And that's a good way to break the news to him. Um, yeah. That'll work out well. Perfect. While you're at it, throw, yeah. in, throw in those mountains, too. Um, yeah. No, but you're right, though. There's definitely, there's, there's definitely enough. Um, there's many options out there for the adventure racers that we're seeing and we're, and we're lucky part of it is the eco challenge effect. Part of it's the fact that we're, we're seeing a lot of growth around it. The adventure, the women in AR initiative has been excellent for the sport. Um, the adventure race discussion group has so many members on Facebook, things like that. There's a lot of media, yeah. this podcast included popping up around it. And so we're very fortunate that way. And Barbara, as we kind of wrap up, we're fortunate to have you, you know, the fact oh, that you, you, the fact that you dove, you know, you know, feet first, head first, right into Expedition Oregon. Um, that is a, uh, that is a, um, it's a lot of things, but one of it is definitely brave. It's, it's good for you to go and to try that. <laughs> if, if you had a chance to kind of rewrite that script and do it, do it differently at all, what would you have done differently, if anything? I don't think I would have changed the experience at all. I am such a different person now that maybe I needed to go through those moments of struggle and hardship to be who I am right now. And I'm so happy with the growth that I have made, but I, I honestly wouldn't change it. There were some definitely scary moments or there was a lot of team conflict at times, but at the end of the day, it was the experience I needed. And so I wouldn't change any of that. Thank you, Barbara, for your time. We're grateful for your honesty, good humor, and for being so enthusiastic about adventure racing and the role that it plays in your life. If you've enjoyed this episode, please pay visit to your podcast streaming platform of choice and leave us a review. That is the best way to spread the word about the Dark Zone. Also, always feel free to reach out to me, Brian, at ardarkzone.com. Your feedback and guest suggestions are always welcome. Thank you, listeners, for joining us at the Dark Zone. Have fun out there.